Family, good morning. The scripture this morning will come from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out all of the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about the man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family. It's really good to see uh, each one of you here. Thanks for making the choice to be here. Let's, uh, let's pray. Um, I was praying for you on my morning run today, but my Sunday runs are not long at all, so I didn't pray for you by name. I prayed for us collectively as, as a family, uh, but we uh, we need to pray for our family. We need to ask God to help us posture ourselves before him as the needy kids that we are, right, to get what we need from him. So let's, let's, let's pause and uh, go to our Father and ask for his help. Father, thank you for welcoming us into your family. You pursued us and adopted us in. Jesus, thank you for doing the work necessary so that we could be adopted in. You um, were the better son in our places where we each failed, and you took the consequences, the judgment for all of our rebellion. You took our guilt and you gave us your rightness so the Father would accept us forever, perfectly in the family. Spirit, we thank you for awakening our hearts to our Father's voice and to Jesus, our rescuing King. And we pray again that you would be present in power in the same way that you brought us to life through the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, Father, that again, that same power would work to open our ears, to hear our Father's voice, to open our eyes, and to awaken our heart away from lesser things um, so that we would love our dad and know his love and live in the reality of that love. We pray that you would do that good work in our hearts this morning as we turn to you again by faith, weak faith and feeble faith, but we turn to you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're well into our series now uh, in the Gospel According to John. It's a series that we've entitled, Jesus is Life. So when I say Jesus is, you say life. Ready? Jesus is? Life. There we go. Man, that was really good. Good. Jesus is life. But let me ask you this question. Do we believe that Jesus is life? I mean, do you believe that Jesus is not just life, but Jesus is your life? Do we believe that? I think when a community of people believes that Jesus is life, 
the more our community will reflect that life in what we could say is a life-giving culture, not only for people in the family, but for those who are not yet a part of the family. Uh, like this, whenever God's family gathers, right, we gather and we passionately receive those who are outsiders or strangers. That's life-giving. So we, we gather and we passionately receive, but we gather and we also passionately rehearse gospel, the good news that, yep, we're rebels, we deserve judgment, but God worked for our good and He adopts us into a family and He promises to keep us forever, right? So we, we receive passionately, we rehearse passionately, and we reorient together as a family around Father, Son, and Spirit, right? When we actually believe that Jesus' life these life-giving qualities will match or flow out of, I'm sorry, will flow out of our culture. But too often, with our rebel tendencies and in our rebel ways, what should be and could be a beautiful life-giving culture starts to lose its life-giving beauty. That's what we see in the passage today, and we see a very visceral response from Jesus, don't we? Uh, how did he respond? And here's the big idea for the text this morning. This was his response. Anything which drowns out, distracts from, or distorts the life-giving culture of our Father's family must be fervently driven out, poured out, flipped out, and called out. Now you may wonder where those verbs come from. I'm not making them up. They're all in the text. That's, we, we heard it read for us. That's exactly how Jesus responded because the culture that He encountered in His Father's house was not life-giving. And we read, or was read for us, Jesus had a zeal. We don't use that word a lot. Uh, maybe too many negative connotations in our culture. It's not okay to be zealous, I guess. Zealous people are on the extreme right and are on the extreme left. I don't know, it's got too many negative connotations in our culture. We could say passion, could we say that? Or fervency, that's a safer word for us. Jesus was consumed with a passion, a fervency, a sense of zealousness for His Father's reputation, for His Father's glory, but also for the good of His Father's family. And because the good of the Father's family impacts those who are not yet part of the family, right? So fervently driven out, poured out, flipped out, or called out. Let's walk through John chapter 2 so you can see exactly where you came from. Let's summarize what was read for us. Last week, where did we leave Jesus and his followers? Where were they? What were they doing? Okay, yes, they had had some wine. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> yes. And they left the wedding. And they went to Capernaum, a, a shore town. They were on the shore. They were on vacation. They were taking a break, okay? Jesus took vacations with his followers. Some of you need to hear that. Like, that's the only sermon you need, hear, you need to hear preach this morning. It's spiritual to rest. It glorifies God to take a knee so that you don't burn out and so that you don't burn out the lives of the people around you, okay? All right, good talk. No, that was, that was, that was another sermon. Rest! All right, so they take a vacation, and then they take a road trip. They go from Capernaum to Jerusalem. The text says they went up to Jerusalem, but you're confused because you've seen Bible maps in the back of your Bible, and it's like Jerusalem's way down south. So what does he mean up? See, the Bible's full of contradictions. 
it's up in elevation, okay? So they leave Capernaum, just like your parents went to school, your grandparents, it was uphill both ways. Now, this way it was uphill from Capernaum to Jerusalem, okay? So we went up to Jerusalem. Takes the boys, uh, they go to the Passover celebration. You guys take block leave at Christmas, maybe 15 days before, 15 days after, so your entire shop's not gutted. Not in a Jewish community, no block leave for Passover. Everybody goes to the temple, work stops, okay? It's a big deal. You're, you're going to the temple. Passover is huge, uh, huge. So they go to Jerusalem, they go to the temple, like every other Jew, Jewish person of the day. Uh, Passover is significant, just a little refresher. Uh, you got Passover, and that's followed by a week-long festival, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So eight, nine days of celebrating. And what are they celebrating? They are celebrating that once they were slaves, once they were um, without hope, once they were far from God, and God the Father intervened for their good, delivered them from slavery, adopted them into His family, gave them a promise, just life-giving promises, and He rescued them out of Egypt. Meanwhile, judgment rained down around them upon those who were not in God's family, but they were protected. You remember how they were protected by the blood of the Lamb. As long as they were under the blood, they were safe. What a, like a beautiful foreshadowing of the Gospel. And so every year they would go to the temple where outsiders would be passionately received and the family would passionately rehearse the good news of the Passover that they were, uh, they were rebels, they were enslaved, but God worked for their good and rather than judgment, they were adopted in and given them freedom, right? They rehearsed the gospel. So they're at the Passover festival. Jesus and his followers walk into the temple and they encounter exactly what you would expect. Joyful songs, thanking God for His rescue. Songs of lament for people who've had a bad year and are just wailing on the wall and crying. Sacrifices being offered. Strangers being welcomed into the outer courts. Gospel being rehearsed. And a family reorienting on the Father, right? That's what we read. Oh, They walk into the temple and the Father's house had been turned into a marketplace. And so the first thing Jesus encounters are those who are actively selling animals, bargaining, uh, driving up the price, all that, the, the, those selling animals inside the temple spaces, and they also encounter those who were there to exchange money. In the temple, you could only use the official local currency, but you had all these pilgrims coming in from different regions. They needed to be able to exchange their money and pay the temple tax and so on. And then you see Jesus respond, right? He, you, you did see this, right? Jesus gathered raw materials to build a whip and then he chased the animals out of the temple with the whip he chased those who were selling the animals out of his father's house with a whip he walked up to the 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 money for the money exchangers picked up the bowls and made a big deal about pouring them all out on the ground and then one by one jesus flipped tables just flipped them over and then he so so we see him driving out we see him pouring out. We see him flipping out, loosely translated, of course, and flipping the tables. And we see him calling out. Then he walks up and he says, yo, you guys, you've turned this house into a marketplace. Leave now. This is not okay. Calls him out. Now, in, in, culture, in Roman culture in that day and age, if you disrupted a religious gathering of any faith, it was a capital offense. Do you know that? Capital offense. You'd be put to death for what Jesus just did. So you can imagine there's a little bit of drama, and the temple authorities come up to him, and they're like, who, who do you think you are? What, 
What authority? You act like this is your house, right? The irony. You act like this is your house. What are you doing? Jesus says, his response to their challenge is, look, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will build it back. Now, the construction project, they were in this temple. The construction project, do you know how old it was? Well, we just read it, right? How many years have they been building this thing out? 46 and it was still about 30 years away from completion. That's insane, right? And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, look, destroy it. I'll show you my authority. I'll rebuild it in three days. So, of course, they thought he was outside of his mind. His disciples, though, tucked that away. And what do we read? After the resurrection, they realized he was talking about his body. The body is the true and better temple. The temple always existed to, to be a foreshadow, to point to Jesus, right? They didn't know it then, but after the resurrection... Just like the wedding, remember they turned the water into wine. Like years later, they would have memories of, oh, guys, remember that day? And we learned that Jesus is the true and better wine and the true and better groom and all these things. Well, now they have another one. Jesus is the true and better temple. They believed this again after the resurrection. And then there's a little side comment about all of the people who were there, and, and Jesus was performing other signs, but Jesus um, saw their belief and he could see in their hearts that the belief was not really in him as their promised rescuing king. They just liked the signs that Jesus was performing. And so literally it would read, Jesus did not believe their belief, right? That's kind of what it says. So there's our text. And we read that and we kind of wonder, man, why, why did Jesus respond so viscerally? So much passion. What was going on? I think in order to understand Jesus just gut-level reaction. We've got to understand the purpose of the temple. Uh, can I get that first-century drone footage up there real quick? There we go. The first-century drone, I Googled it, and there it was. Actually, that's an artist rendering, um, but that would have been cool. It's an artist rendering, but it's pretty accurate. And just to kind of set it up, just without all the detail, obviously you see the walls and you see all the interior courts. See those wide-open spaces on both sides? That was known as the court of the Gentiles. So that space existed to welcome those who were not yet part of the family into kind of the periphery of the family culture, what the family was doing. So they weren't invited into the living room yet, but they were definitely in the dining room. So these would be people who were neighbors of God's family who had heard the good news of the gospel. Maybe they were curious. And so this was the space where they could be invited into where a, a weary stranger who knew nothing of the promises of God and was restless in this world could get their first taste of rest. It was the place where a weary stranger who didn't know the promises of God and wasn't yet allowed in the living room, if you will, in the inner courts, was allowed into the dining room, if you will, and could experience a taste of the culture. They could see people or hear people joyfully singing to the God who rescued them. They could hear people pouring out their tears and lamenting, but still trusting in a God who had been faithful to them at the Passover and at every Passover since. It was a place where people who had not found a home in the world could for the first time begin to find a home in God, which is exactly what they are created for. This space around the center of the temple was the critical place where outsiders could receive a passionate first welcome into God's family. 
That wasn't the only purpose of the temple. Obviously, that was the purpose for those who weren't yet part of the family. But there were purposes for those who were in the family. And we already kind of learned what those were early in the beginning. We, we talked about warmly or passionately receiving strangers. We talked about that in the outer courts. Uh, but also to rehearse the gospel and to reorient life on God. So this is the place that Jewish people would go to rehearse the good news or the gospel. Um, this is the place that they would go to re rehearse what happened at the Passover, to be reminded that they were once slaves, but the Father sent them, uh, set them free. It's where they went to be reminded that they were rebels, they were sinners, they had actually lived lives that were offensive to God and deserving of judgment. But God said, come here and sacrifices can be offered and you can be reconciled to me and you, there is a way for you to be made right with me. I'm good and I'm pursuing and I'm forgiving and I'm promise keeping. So this is the space where that good news would be rehearsed, gospel rehearsal. And it's the space where God's family would quietly reorient their lives back on the Father. It's not about me. It's not about all these lesser things. My story is anchored in the larger story of my Father and His rescuing, redemptive work. And I'm a son or I'm a daughter. So why did Jesus respond so viscerally? Because that sacred space, which He refers to as my Father's house, it's really telling that He uses that word, house, this was their home. This is where all of those, this is where a person encountered God and God's family in a soulful, reflective way. This was the place where we take a knee and take a breath and reconnect with the Father. Out there is chaos, and you don't take the breathers that you should. You don't take refuge in God. You don't let your soul be renewed in God. We press and we press and press until we burn out. And they're like, man, what happened? Well, you weren't taking refuge in God. You weren't being renewed in your soul by God. So this was the space where that would happen. Jesus, so that's a life-giving culture, right? Life-giving benefits for people outside the family and inside the family. So that explains why Jesus then would respond so viscerally for this because he had a passion that consumed him for the Father's glory and for the good of the family's culture because the family culture uh, could work for life or for death into the lives of God's family and for life and, or for death into the lives of those not yet in the family. And that psalm that's quoted in this passage is Psalm 69, right? Where he says, a zeal will consume me for my father's house. That's Psalm 69, and that's a messianic statement, meaning that the only one who could, who could repair and restore what was supposed to be a life-giving culture would be the promised rescuing king. So when Jesus acts this way, for his followers, as they're beginning to understand who he is, they, it would be another clue that, oh my goodness, nobody else has ever responded this way. Nobody else has the ability to restore this culture of our father's family. This is our rescuing king. So the space that existed to give a seat at the table for outsiders and to give a space for soulful rest for strangers the space that existed for God's family to rehearse that they were once rebels, but they were rescued, and that God, through, uh, through the death of a substitutionary sacrifice, makes a way to be reconciled. The sacred space where God's family could reorient their lives and anchor it in God's story was gone. And so what was supposed to be life-giving was now death-inducing. The sacred space was drowned out by the noise of a market. 
the sacred moments were distracted from by uh, the markets. It was the, the beautiful, life-giving pieces of the culture were diminished and destroyed. And so Jesus did what he had to do. He flipped tables. He poured out the money. He drew all of this noise and all of this chaos. Jesus, Jesus drove it out and poured it out and flipped it out and called it out. He cleaned house. He restored order. He reset the culture. He had a passion that consumed him for his Father's glory and for the good of the family. And that day when Jesus cleaned house, Jesus cleaned house so that outsiders and strangers could once again find a place of rest. And when Jesus cleaned house, he restored the peace that should have been present and the silence that could have been present so that God's kids could sing their joyful songs, could cry their tears of pain and sorrow and find healing in the Father. Jesus cleaned it out to create space. He flipped tables so that strangers who were far away and rebel sons and daughters who were far away from home could once again come home and find a place of rest in the Father's house. Of course, that was a foreshadow of what Jesus would do on the cross. Because what Jesus did was impactful for this day. Maybe it lasted the week, but you know what happened? The tables got set back up. The animals were marched right back into the temple. All that craziness came back again. And Jesus would have to clean house again one more time before he would go to the cross. And he did. The other gospel writers tell about that account. But for the moment, that space was created. But what it did was it pointed to the cross. And guys, do you know what Jesus, Jesus did on the cross? What he did for his brothers and sisters on that day, he did for you. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he flipped the ultimate table for you. Paul tells us there was a dividing wall of hostility between you and the Father. There was nothing you could do. Jesus had to flip that in your place. And honestly, the gospel, the way it communicates us about us, not that we're just these innocent bystanders either. We are the guilty ones. We are the ones guilty of setting up the tables in the Father's house. We are the ones who have erected distortions to the gospel. We are the ones who have been distracted and distracted others from the beauty of the gospel. We are the ones who have diminished the life-giving work of the Father. We are the ones who have drowned out the beauty of the gospel. So when Jesus flipped tables and Jesus went to the cross and flipped the ultimate table, he did that for you so that you could come back home to the Father and find a place of rest, and a place at the table, and a place of peace. That's really good news, isn't it? But there's better news. There's better news. It's not just that Jesus flipped tables. Jesus actually flipped the temple. And this is why it's better news for you. We see this later in the, in the account, right? Uh, he's getting called out for flipping the tables. Uh, they challenge him and they're like, hey, what, what, what sign do you show for us doing these things? You're an outsider. What authority do you have? You can't act this way. Who do you think you are? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, you're, you're insane. It's taken us 46 years to build this. You, you think you're going to build it back in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Guys, nobody knew it at the time. Nobody knew it at the time, but what Jesus just declared in public is, listen, I am the true and better temple. See, 
On that day, Jesus created space so that rebel sons and faraway strangers could once again find life-giving culture, peace, reconciliation, gospel rehearsal, gospel renewal in the Father's house. But then on the same day, he said, actually, I'm the Father's house. And so you're no longer going to find these things in a structure. You're going to find these things in a Savior. I am the Father's home. Now here's where the story gets absolutely beautiful. You see, before Jesus made that statement and showed himself to be the true and better temple, it would be on you to clean yourself up and get back to the temple and purify yourself again and clean yourself up again and pay for an animal and watch and have that animal killed on your behalf and have the blood drained and do all of these things. The, the onus would be on you to get back to the Father's house. You clean up. You get back. And guys, that's what religion and a Jesus-less Christianity still communicates. You know what the gospel says? I'm the true and better temple. Now watch this. And as soon as he said that, Jesus walked himself out the front door of that temple. And for the rest of his experience before the cross, Jesus, the true and better temple went to strangers who were homeless and rebels who would never clean themselves up and get back to the Father's home. And He brought the Father's house to them in the dusty, dark alleyways of Jerusalem and then in Judea through His followers and then in Galilee, the region, and now today globally through His followers, through you and through me. Jesus, who is the true and better temple, brings the Father's home to rebels who will never clean themselves up and walk themselves back to the Father's house. That's the gospel beauty in this story. And that's why you're part of the family. Because I know your heart. You're like, no, you don't, John. You don't know me like that. Right. I don't know you like that. But we have enough common denominators in the gospel that there, there are enough commonalities in our hearts that we know each other and we know we wouldn't clean ourselves up and we wouldn't go back to the Father. And even for those of you who did, your motives were mixed and they weren't pure. And, and there were days for those of you who grew up in religious settings where you had walked yourself back to the temple, but then you would rebel and then you would come back and then you would rebel and your heart would be hot and then it would be cold can't do it on your own you can't flip the tables you can't flip the temple you need Jesus to flip the temple and flip the tables and flip the temple on your behalf and then prove to you that he is the true and better temple and he brings home to you the homeless rebel that's the beauty of the gospel now guys I tried to think of a way for us to wrap our minds around how 2,000 years later our family could find itself in the same dynamic that they had found themselves in where the life-giving culture of their family had been drowned out, diminished, just crowded out with noise, right? Crowded out with noise. The closest I could really come to that just honestly made me laugh a little bit but cringe throughout the week. Imagine, close your eyes and use your imagination. Imagine if Pillar contracted with military auto sales uh, for all of our hospitality and our childcare check-in and our greeting. And so uh, they would be the first, I should, did anybody work for military auto sales? All right, good. Oh yeah. Um, I'm not picking on the people, I'm picking on the culture of the organization. 
maybe, but if you don't have base access, if you're not SOFA, um, I'm not SOFA either. Uh, so if you, don't, if you don't have the blessing of daily interacting with uh, MAS, uh, maybe when you've gone through the mall and you pass the kiosks, and you know you want the lotion on your hands, Ben. Like, you know, like that, that invasive kind of, right? Imagine if approaching the church building, um, you were greeted with that kind of a culture. The communion elements were for sale. The, the seats were for sale. Um, it was loud. Bargains were being struck. Deals were being driven. Roulette wheels were spinning. TVs were being given away. Just all of this noise crowding out what should be. Who, who would want to be in this space? Nobody. Nobody. Now that's an extreme example. And while we've been tempted to contract, maybe at least for childcare, because that would help, we've not struck a deal with uh, military auto sales. Um, but guys, there are other ways that we can drown out or diminish or distract from or distort the life-giving beauty of the gospel and the culture of our father's family, right? I don't think we have to work too hard to imagine some of those ways. But let, let's do that work together. Let's do that work together. Here are a couple of questions to help us consider um, in three, maybe three areas. Uh, here's the first question. What is currently drowning out, distracting from, or distorting the life-giving culture of? We'll fill in the blanks. And then you could ask it this way. What needs to be driven out, poured out, flipped out, or called out to restore that life-giving culture? Now let, me just, now let me just say something. Our generation is really caught up in outrage culture and cancel culture. Part of the reason we are is because we are consumed with flipping tables in other people's spaces. Tell you what, here's the deal. If you can destroy the temple and build it back in three days, then go ahead and assert yourself in those spaces and flip other, other people's tables. Until you can prove that you can rebuild that temple in three days, let's focus on our own tables in our own spaces. I think that would be just a healthy way to approach life. But I think we need to start by asking, it's very clear that Jesus had a passion for the life-giving culture of his father's family because we saw his visceral response. Let me ask you, let me ask me, do we share Jesus' passion for the life-giving culture of his father's family? That might be a good starting point. Do we share that passion? Do you know, you can only, he was consumed with it. That's what the verb says. He was, cons, it drove him, it compelled him. Are we consumed by that? Do you know you're created to be consumed? Did you know that? As an image bearer of God, you're created for consumption. Well, not consumption, that'd be weird. You're created to be consumed. Uh, so that's not bad. We're all consumed all the time. We're either consumed with God and his beauty and the glory of the gospel and his fame, or you're consumed with lesser things, yourself, um, a million substitute gods, right? We are created to be consumed with God's glory. I think it would be a healthy starting point to just start there and ask, have I, am I living in, in such a way in community with God's family in Okinawa that other people would think I'm consumed with the life-giving nature of my father's family? Right? Am I? So then let's move. Um, let's move into our missional community spaces, our, our family gathering spaces, and our own heart. Uh, if I can invite you to do some homework, for those of you who are part of a missional community, I would encourage you first to work through these questions as a missional community. I can't answer these questions for you, but what is currently drowning out, distracting from, or distorting the life-giving culture of our missional community? Maybe some examples. Um, we know that God's family exists not only to warmly welcome outsiders, but to actively pursue them in the same way he pursued us, yeah? Um, and there's a reason we call our missional communities 
missional communities, but let's just be honest for a moment, most of our MCs, to include mine, uh, may be a really strong community, but we might as well take the word missional out, to be honest. Can we be that honest? So maybe that's a starting point. Let's ask the question, who are we actually pursuing as a missional community? Name, people group, place, and if we can't fill that in, maybe that's part of what's distorting or distracting from, right? Like, let's work through these questions diligently as a missional community. The next space that we need to move to is our worship gatherings. And this one might be a little bit challenging because everybody's got a different perspective and a different lived experience. But I don't think that should stop us from doing the work because this is really important work. What in our worship gatherings is currently drowning out, distracting from, or distorting the life-giving culture of our Father's family? What needs to be driven out, poured out, flipped out, or called out? I would welcome your feedback. You can send it to me anonymously if you want, or you just email me, post it on my Facebook wall, whatever you want to do, and I'll share those feedbacks with our pastoral team because we, re we really want to give ourselves to this for God's fame and for the good of other people. There's a movie, uh, Denzel Washington by day works in a Home Depot, and by night he does lots of vigilante stuff that's probably not consistent with gospel expression, but anyway, by day he's coaching a younger man who's tragically out of shape, but he wants to elevate his family's living circumstances by moving away from his minimum wage like shelf stocking job to becoming like a certified security guard. It's a really cool sub-narrative in the movie. And so he's coaching them up, and they're sharing a meal one day, and this young man's sitting at the table with Denzel's character, and he's eating his vegetable sandwich. It's supposed to be like tomatoes and white bread or wheat bread, whatever. That's, that's it. A little regimen that he has him on. But every bite crunches. And Denzel's like, yo, that's like this really crunchy tomato. Like, what's going on with your veggie sandwich? And he's like, I don't know. I got, like, I got crunchy tomatoes from produce this week. So Denzel takes the sandwich out of his hands, and he opens up the two loaves or the two pieces of bread, and what's inside? Chips chips, potato chips. Guys, we have to be humble enough to posture ourselves beneath this text in the right way. First of all, we're not Denzel's character, okay? We're the kid trying to make radical life changes for his father's fame and for the good of the family's culture. But here's, here's the deal. We're not asking the question, do we have tables that need to be flipped? We're asking, what are the tables that need to be flipped? You have, every time we take a bite of our sandwich, it crunches. I mean, that's just, that was a really lousy illustration. But every time we take a bite of our sandwich and express the culture of our church, guys, we're so imperfect and we have so many areas we need to grow. Let's, all I'm asking is let's be humble and thoughtful to consider what those areas are. All right, so um, in our MCs, in our worship gatherings, in our worship gatherings, Here's maybe just one example. If our father's family exists to not only passionately receive outsiders, but to pursue them, do outsiders and strangers walk into our gatherings and experience pursuit from the moment they step into our door until the moment I leave? Or is it possible for people to visit once or twice and then leave and never have a meaningful, soulful interaction? That would be a gospel distortion. Guys, we have potato chips in our sandwiches. A couple years ago, I was at a school in South Carolina, and I visited a church, right? Deep South, that was going for me. 
um, an Acts 29 church. That was going for me. We're an Acts 29 church. I'm a pastor. Like, I know how to get myself invited to someone's dinner table. I know the insider language. So I texted my wife. I'm like, yo, I'm going to church. I'll text you when I'm seated at someone's dinner table. Boom. I walked in. I sat down. I got up. The pastor kind of gave me a head nod and a quick handshake, and I walked out. Not, a, not one other interaction. Not one. It was a really good experience for me as a pastor because that hurt. It was hard. And then I had to text my wife and, like, from Moe's or something like that. I don't remember. But not someone's dinner table and not Chick-fil-A. But not someone's dinner table. <laughs> Guys, that happens here. We're not asking where the tables are. We're, we're, asking, or we're not asking if we have tables. We're asking where the tables are. And so maybe one way to approach it would be, all right, if we want a culture of hospitality, generosity, and pursuit, if, I, if everybody in the room, in our family, is a clone of me, would our culture be hospitable, generous, and pursuing? Or do I depend upon other people to make our culture generous, hospitable, and pursuing? Right? We have a lot of questions that we can ask and answer together if we're humble and willing to ask them. i, I got to wrap up. So let's move to our heart. Notice how this passage concludes. Um, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Guys, the most important place this week that table flipping needs to happen is in my heart and your heart. I have allowed and I have actually created distortions in my own heart and mind to the gospel. Uh, so preoccupied that the, my father's voice is drowned out, so there are days I hardly hear him, where I diminish the beauty of the gospel. Guys, the most important table flipping is here. And unless I'm flipping tables here, honestly, we don't have any business flipping tables in our MCs or in our worship gatherings, right? In what ways have I drowned out my father's voice? What tables need to flip? How am I diminishing? How am I distorting? I dare you to ask these questions, and I dare you to pray and ask the Father to show you the answers to these questions through the work of the Spirit. He will. He will. The end of this passage can be a little disorienting and fear-inducing. I remember growing up and being so afraid that my belief was a little bit insincere, that God wouldn't actually accept me. And then I read a passage like this, and I'm like, oh, he does see belief and the levels of sincerity and Jesus did not believe their belief. That was, that's really unsettling to me. But guys, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus doesn't really believe any of your belief, okay? We're all weak in our believing. We all have very weak hearts. So the gospel solution is not believe stronger or believe better. That would be religious, and it would be Jesus deficient. The gospel would say, tell the truth about your weak belief, Dad, I believe, but barely, like, please help my unbelief, right? That's, the gospel invites you to confess weakness. The gospel would say, don't try to believe better. Just in all your weak belief, believe that you have a better Savior. Don't, don't try to have stronger belief. Anchor all of your hope in your stronger Savior who is better than your weak belief. Guys, Jesus sees exactly what's in your heart. Let's just tell him the truth of what's there that he already knows. Jesus, you're my rescuer king, but there are a lot of days I don't believe that. I know you're my life, but there are a lot of days I don't believe that. Help my unbelief, and thank you, Father, for the beauty of the gospel, that I'm not accepted based on the strength of my belief, because if that were true, like every day I would be kicked out of the family, then I'd have to work it back up to get invited in. 
I am accepted because of Jesus' better belief in my place where he went to the cross and he proved himself to be the better son. And so now by faith, the beauty of the gospel invites me to admit my weak, mixed motive belief and to place all of my hope on Jesus' kindness and better belief in my place and then to receive the mercy that flows from the Father. Guys, every member of our Father's family has weak and mixed motive belief. And you're not accepted because you're a good kid. You're accepted because Jesus was the better son in your place. Grant's going to come, I think. No, not Grant. Somebody else. Darren's going to come and lead us in a moment of confession and maybe some reflection. And then we'll rehearse the gospel together as we share communion. Darren, won't you come?